0: Okay.
1: Good evening everyone and thanks a million for coming along. We'd like to welcome Jur and thank him for coming all the way from Ennis to speak to us tonight. Um, some of you might remember, Jur was our first Zoom, Zoom lecture um, or lecture through Zoom during Covid and we had great fun trying to set it all up. We're delighted to have him here in person. He has written and researched extensively on basically everything to do with the war, and World War One, World War Two, the Black and Tans—I think you've done as well—and the links to County Clare. So he's going to talk to us a bit about that tonight. So thanks very much, dear.
0: Thanks to me. I gave um, a lecture, as I said, on Zoom. Um, I think it was March last year, and it's all about and I in the Great War and it was incredibly detailed, it took 19 minutes, so I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to put you all through that kind of a lecture. So I'd like to give you kind of an uplifting one on all, on all these incredible people, and these were incredible people, who fought, died, or were involved in some way, and I'm not talking about men, loads of nurses died, There were, you know, they were, they were working in hospitals, they never left the hospitals when they were being bombed, and they were killed. That just was the norm. And I, I know you don't think there were too many bo- uh, hospitals being bombed, not that many in Britain, but I can tell you they were being bombed all over France because that's where all the casualties were. By the time they got to England, fair enough, they were shipped to hospitals all over England, massive hospitals. And over, well, I don't know, maybe a hundred or, or Claremen or, or have died in, in hospitals because that's where they eventually ended or else they were brought back to Ireland when they had no hope at all. But the nurses, absolutely, uh, how many? We lost seven nurses. and I'm sure you might have heard of the HMS Leinster. It was just a month before the war ended in October 1918. 500 people died. It was uh, hit by three torpedoes. It was a civilian ship. Um, it was called the Leinster, there was the Munster, there was the Connacht, there was the Ulster, there were all four different ships. But, um, but what I'd like to do, I'm not gonna go into detail tonight because even if I wanted to do, we have, we have a beautiful memorial now in Ennis with 700 names on it. And there is an in-depth on all of those people, the 700 people. And if, even if I stayed and just gave you one minute, on those seven hundred people. We would be here until nine o'clock tomorrow morning, you know, and that's without me stopping, okay? So I'm not going to do that, but I would just like to show you what is there, and it is enormous. And I would like to show you what's there in World War II, which is completely different in a way to the emergency, which is another fascinating topic. I'd like to show you what's there on The IRA, the different brigades, I'd like to show you what's there. There's a massive amount on the RIC. I'm actually giving a lecture next week now, or the week after next on the RIC in in Ennis. And there is a massive, what's the nicest word to use? Deficit of knowledge available out there at the moment. But I'm just hoping to plug the gaps. And again, there are a lot of people who've written, I I would even say Dr. Thomas Conmara, who you all know, um, who, who found all my research on the RIC incredibly helpful when he was looking at it from the scarf Martyr's point of view because he just wanted to know what was going on on the other side and you know it's, it's things like that it's very hard to research any topic without just looking at it from one side if you want to do a balanced you should do it get a, get see what's happening on the other side as well so um, all I was trying to do was fill gaps and uh, so look we're in the Clare Library website uh, it's packed with. This is one of the most brilliant library websites there is in this island. We have a fantastic reputation. Our libraries, uh, our library, and uh, the Clare Little Root Society, which I, uh, which actually wrote or published all my books, one of the best in the country. If you're interested in any topic, you know we we have. If you're interested in any topic, we have a massive reservoir of knowledge right in front of you here. Um, If you want to know anything about Clare. What what World War One's? I've collected 4,000 names. Now, not all of them are online but a lot of them are, especially the Americans and the Australians, Canadians. Uh, A lot of the British but not all of them. Um, But you have to start reading papers, you have to go into local history books. You have to search places that nobody could think of and then if, you, if you're willing, especially the newspapers, and we're very fortunate in World War I, in everybody who was killed in Clare in World War I featured in the newspapers. All the wounded featured in the newspapers. All the stories, and I have all the newspapers as part of the World War I package that you can read without having to read all the newspapers, because I have every article between 1914 and 2013, if you want to read them. When I spoke to you last year I gave you the overall picture and these are all the different countries that Claremont fought in and then these are different Leinster, Munster, Ulster, Connacht regiments and then a the lot of them. Uh, 4,000 4, men and women were involved in World War I from Clare, 3,000 of them were involved in the British forces and 1,000 were in the American, Canadian, Australian, uh, South African, even somewhere in the French. and. Again, it goes through the Australian, the Canadians, French, New Zealanders, South African, Indian, and even the Indian forces. It goes to all the different regiments. I'm not gonna do it again now because I did this for you last year. Uh, the Royal Flying Corps, the Tank Corps, the Artillery, the Machine Gun Corps, the Cavalry, the Medical Corps, the Veterinary, Royal Engineers, the Army Service Corps, the belabor Battalion, and this is all there. Um, chaplains, and then um, a huge amount of work done by the clear women in World War One as well. It goes through all the different, Battles, famous battles: Etchu, Rudapov, Ypres, Flanders, Gallipoli, Loos, uh, the Somme, of course, Salonika. Uh, I was actually looking at Lefroy there. He's just two memorials down there, the small one just before the big one. Or oh, no, sorry, he's just here. Lefroy was killed in the Somme. Um, he was asked to go out on a on an attack that the previous officer refused to do, um, purely because he knew it was suicide. And the Germans knew he was leaving before he even left the trench. And Lefroy and his unit was absolutely decimated. He didn't have a chance, you know. Um, And that's his beautiful memorial over there. And I mean, I haven't even gone into Parker and all these lads behind me. Um, So again, uh, they were killed on the RMS Leinster, the Lusitania, there were prisoners of war, a huge amount got shell shock, I I wouldn't, if you go on, you just would be amazed how many Clare brothers and sisters and fathers, how many families were involved, the politicians, we won't go there, and then fascinating stories about um, court-martials, you wouldn't, honestly, you wouldn't believe them. I mean, you, you just couldn't make half of this up. Uh, 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 let's say, okay, here's one for you now. Four, four Kilrush men, all royal monster fusiliers, they're back on leave with their rifles, 1916. Okay, they, They're um, they're, they're, um, on a train, uh, believe it or not, from Ennis to Kilrush, and who's on it but Countess Markovic. She's giving a talk. If I remember, it's in the old CBS school. She's giving a talk there, okay. Oh sorry, I'm in the wrong town. That's in Kilrush, my mistake. She's giving a talk in in the CBS school. So she meets them on the train, convinces them to give their rifles to the volunteers, which They do, believe it or not. So anyway, they come back tennis without their rifles. Uh, They're caught. Um, uh, Three of them are in the Royal Munster Fusiliers, one of them with the Australians. The Australians never executed any soldier of theirs in World War I. Hundreds of British soldiers were executed. So three of them are about to be shot, okay, but one of them had about four brothers involved. They were all from Kilrush. Now, honestly, I mean, I can talk about Killaloo, but if you really want to see a town that is absolutely embedded in World War I is Kilrush. Uh, the Glen, just one small street. It's all been wiped out now, but the Glen is when you come into Kilrush, just before you come into the town, there's a turn off, to the, uh, turn off up the left and it goes up a, a, a small hill. And that's the Glen. 70 houses, sorry, 40 something, 8 houses. 70 men from the Glen. 70 out of 48 houses fought in World War One, and that's even before I go to all the other streets in Kilrush. Um, But anyway, because they all had families involved, you know, they were all brothers, etc, etc, so two of them were let off, just wrapped in the knuckles. But the third guy was was sentenced to death, okay? So he was about to be sentenced to death, so what does he say? He has a choice to be sentenced to death here, or to be sentenced to death at the front, and he says, I'll take the front. And who is the officer? A Clareman, who else? so the Claremont says "Um, no uh, I think we'll come with a a better idea we'll put him in a foxhole we'll put him in a foxhole in no man's land where he hasn't got a chance and leave him there until he dies okay so sure enough they they give him provisions they put him out in a foxhole and they leave him there and he can't come back and he can't go forward so you know he's just waiting for an attack but what happens one evening is that he hears an officer or he hears someone crying he hears someone Wounded, not very strange, in no man's land. But, he, but it wasn't because of a battle. Is that they're all doing recce every night. When you're in no man's land, you know, they're all doing suicidal things like going across, taking prisoners and bringing them back or trying to see what the enemy is doing or taking a prisoner and then interrogating the prisoner. You know, absolutely crazy things. So one of the officers got caught in the enemy, uh, barbar. he gets out of the, um, his foxhole this is after three weeks in No Man's Land. He crawls, you know, right across, finds the officer. He didn't know he was an officer at the time, but he finds him, untangles him, pulls him back out of the wire and drags him all the way back to his trenches. And because of that, he was reprieved. And he lived a very long life. I saw his grave. It's smack in the middle of Shannachal in Kilrush. And he lived a long happy because of that major stroke of luck, you know? But there are all these crazy stories, but they're all in this, if you're interested. And there, I, I, I gave you some of them last year. Um, so I, I'm only giving you one example, but there were all these crazy things going on during World War I. So this is the Memorial in Ennis. It was, um, it was built in 2016. Uh, three glass panels, there are three silhouettes. That's a tommy, um, the Anzac is there, and that's a doughboy. A doughboy is a U.S. soldier. And I'm sure you know Anzac is an Australian New Zealander and all the names go up in they're all on um they're done by town or village there's no ranks Um, unlike most war memorials absolutely not a rank to be seen and and in military memorials it's all the surname first and then the Christian name um we, we just wanted to put them down as where where the way they were before they left, if that makes sense, back in their villages, back in their towns. And, um, and in a way, I know this sounds strange, but you know, I, won't, I can't even give you a hint of all the battles they fought in and all the battles they died in, but they died in all of them. Any, any battle that you can mention of any importance in World War I, and I might add, a lot of women died as well. So we felt we were just bringing them back home again. You know, um, by building a memorial, and we think, you know, I know this sounds a bit corny now, but we feel that they're resting at peace again because they are back. And we, um, this went up in 2016. A World War II Memorial is right across from it. That went up only last year, much less names. This is 700, the World War II Memorial only has, only has 70, Um, but again, as I say, believe me, there are a lot more, but we just don't know about them yet. I guarantee it's going to go around it. So, this is the memorial. Um, We think it's a beautiful memorial. Uh, We could have put it in stone, but we thought the glass looked nice. Uh, Anyway, um, this is Australia. I'm not going to go through it all. You know, 210 Claremen fought with the Australians. Uh, You know, we just 41 died. There's New Zealand, there's Canada. So it goes through all the different um, countries that Claremont fought with. It goes through all the medals, I might add, they won, and Claremont won bucket loads of medals, everything bar the Victoria Cross. Um, this is the Distinguished Conduct Medal, that's the step below a Victoria Cross, and I'm not going to go into it. But, um, and then you have military crosses, military medals, uh, incredibly brave people. And then you have mentioned the dispatches, which is not a medal. Um, but it's the next thing below it Um, so uh, you know you just wouldn't believe the number of um, Claremen that are involved I mean these are just the Canadians from Kilrush alone that fought with the Canadians just from Kilrush and then it goes through all the different aspects of it Um, it's just you know it's just hard to get a handle on it Uh, but it is you know it's it's hard to believe how massive the numbers are. And then the, the French uh, then the US Army, like if we could have a, a lecture alone just on the US Army. I mean I, I, the Irish Army was actually bigger than the US Army, uh, you know, believe it or not. Um, when when the World War I started they still hadn't really recovered from the Civil War, you know, they were still a divided country. And then half the population of the U.S. when World War, II, uh, World war I started, were all immigrants. So it, w- it really is, f- you know, even without even talking about the war itself. But here's Pershing. He's walking off a boat, landing in France. Okay, this is 1917. The Americans didn't even start fighting in World War I. Really start fighting until March, April, May of 1918. Okay. So he's, he's landing on a boat into France in 17, and the French are treating him like a god, which he is or was, but he still only has an army of 130, 100, maybe even less. They had only 10 planes. They ended up with something like 10,000. Um, and he only had 100,000 active soldiers. He ended up with 5 million. Um, but this is the way the Americans work. Um, he goes back to America He tells Woodrow Wilson, who's the president, we have a serious problem here. Uh, We need... You know, at this stage, the Germans, the British and the French were absolutely exhausted. You know, putting it mildly, it was brutal, it was vicious, it was disastrous. You know, it was just... You know, we'll just... We'll keep wearing them down, no matter how many men we lose because we're going to have more men than they do. And it was going to be the last man standing was going to be the way the war was going to end until the Americans came in. So what the Americans did then was, they just, like they did in World War II, when World War II started, you're not going to believe this, but they still only had 200,000 soldiers. Now I agree they were ready, more ready for World War II by the time Pearl Harbor happened. But in 1939, the Americans still only had 200,000. You know. Give them a few years and they had 50 million drafted, Not only 17 only, used 17 million soldiers in World War II, but this is you know and after they lost most of their carriers or most of their battleships in in Pearl Harbor I mean it's just like awakening I mean we've all seen the film Tori, Tori. it's like awakening a giant and that's what the Americans did, they built these massive I mean massive um, training camps all over America. Once, once Pershing came back after this trip and he said to Woodrow Wilson, we have a problem here. We have to send an army to, to Europe fast. You know, it's go, you know, it's touch and go the way it was going. Um, and we have to do it fast because what had happened to make it more worrying for the Americans is that the Russians, uh, thanks to Lenin, the Russians had surrendered for all the world. So the Germans had half a million troops over on the west on their eastern front. So they were shipping them across because the Russians had given up. So the British, Irish, French had this massive army to look forward to. And it came, it came across in March. It was called the Kaiserschlacht, named after the Kaiser. And they were going to put everything into winning the war before the Americans showed up. So they knew the Americans were on the way, but they were determined, the Germans, to finish off, to finish off the well, what we call the Allies, before the Americans had time to put their army together. And of course the Americans knew this, the British knew this, the French knew this, and they told perishing after he landed off this boat what was happening. They had to work fast. so they. The goes back and he says, we have a problem here, we have to raise... Uh, he raised five million, they brought two million to uh, Europe. Two hundred and fifty thousand a month were shipped across the Atlantic. U-boats everywhere. And if a ship was sunk, that was it. Nobody was going back in any convoy that went across in World War I, not in mind World War II. If a ship was hit, I'm terribly sorry, that's just the way it is. It's gonna sink. And we're not coming back for any survivors. or we will go down with it. So, um, you know, and ships were sunk with soldiers on them. But they still the Americans, they, 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 they built these massive camps. Half a million men in each camp. I can't remember how many. Five or six of them all over America. And the most amazing thing about it was none of them hardly could speak English. None of their new recruits. I mean, the classic one was they built one in New Jersey for New York. I mean, what? I mean, New York, what an amazing place it must have been in 1916, 1917. I mean, all the ghettos everywhere. Um, everything, Irish, Jewish, everything. Every country in the world was there. So, and then all the officers were from, what would I call it, were all the wealthy elite. So you have the wealthy elite going into these camps, hundreds of thousands of new recruits, and you, you and every time you ask seemingly any of them what were they they'd say I'm Irish American, I'm Jewish American, I'm Italian American, I'm Hungary American, I'm Russian American. So what they had to do and they, and this is what was brilliant about World War One, they had to wipe out the hyphen. They had to turn them all into Americans and they had to do it pretty fast because the Germans were on the way. So they absolutely it's an amazing feat what they did. They just didn't they just equip them like the Americans do. They produced all the equipment. They built all the ships. They got all their supplies. You know, they got all the backups. You know, the medical corps, the you know, the artillery, the navy, etc., etc. I mean, as the Americans do, they just did it. And then they shipped them on boats and they landed them in France. And then they refused to let the British or French take control of them. Pershing was the boss, and he was not going to let them. Uh, start fighting until he was happy, but he had to let them in faster than he expected because even in March um, they still hadn't shipped over that. I can't remember it was only half a million at that stage, but they they came in at the perfect time because the Germans were just crossing the Marne again for the second time. They were doing it; they did it earlier on in the war, and the Americans held them back at places like Billowood, all these all these m- crazy places where the French would never, the French would never, ever have gone into, are probably because they had gone into and they got hammered. But the Americans were fearless and they stopped the Germans. And then the Americans without a shadow of doubt turned World War One. That war was not going to end until everybody was dead. And they, okay, they lost, the Americans lost, even in only the shortest of periods, four or five months, they lost 110,000 men. Now the crazy thing about it was the Spanish flu came into the picture. Now, they called it Spanish flu because seemingly it was about the only country in Europe that didn't mind being called after. It had nothing to do with Spain or the Spanish. It was brought over by the Americans. It originated in Kansas of all places. The Americans brought it over and it wiped out 50,000 American soldiers at the most crucial battle, which was the last battle, uh, the, um, the Musargon one. And um, it really shook Pershing to the core because this was going to be the battle to turn the war. Soldiers were dropping like flies. And what was worse then, they were all being shipped back to America. And I think they wiped out the entire nurses, the entire nursing corps on the East Coast of America was wiped out. And it was completely different to the flu, the, I mean, they're trying to compare the Spanish flu with the coronavirus flu. It couldn't have been more opposite. The Spanish flu only affected the young and the healthy. It was only the young and the healthy. It hardly affected us. It hardly affected Claire at all. Um, or, you know, I'm sure if you've heard, it, it was being mentioned recently because of the coronavirus epidemic. But it, we obviously weren't young and healthy, but the Americans were, and they were getting absolutely pulverised. But they still kept shipping over their quarter million soldiers every month and they were managed, they just about managed to plug the gap. Pershing had a nervous breakdown. Um, recovered, thankfully. And then the war went into a different phase and the Germans knew the end was up. And then they, fu- they signed the armistice. The Germans did not, in their mind, ever, surrender, they signed an armistice. As a matter of fact, World War II, as far as they were concerned, was purely just an extension of World War I. They never surrendered. Uh, and then, of course, it didn't help what happened after the war and uh, the reparations they were asked to pay. I don't. I think they eventually paid for them in, in 2014. Um, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I'm not trying to give you an excuse here for World War II, they were, they were pulverised, um, well I wouldn't say pulverised militarily, well of course they were, but what happened after it then didn't help. You know, completely opposite of World War II with the Mark Plan. It was absolutely opposite what happened in Germany in World War I, okay? Now, in Germany during World War I, you see, what used to happen every five years I'm sorry to be done. Every five years, the British Navy would have this massive, what would you call it, exhibition, uh, off somewhere in the Channel. And they would invite every country in the world to come along. And this, the British Navy, they might, the British might have only had a 200,000, 150,000 army. It, it wasn't an army. The British never had armies. It was called an expeditionary force. It just went wherever there was a problem by God they had a navy, they had one million in their navy. The British always relied on their navy. And what they did was, if anybody started giving trouble, they would just blockade the harbour of the capital, wherever that was, as long as it was of course near the sea. They would starve everybody there until the government got the sense and changed their mind, whatever the problem was. And then the British navy would pull back again. And invariably, it happened in the Crimean War. Okay, most of the war was fought down by Crimea, but the British Navy were up by Leningrad, blocking all their harbours, or blocking all their ports. But the British did that in World War I as well. It was the first thing they did. Within a day or two of World War I starting, they blockaded all the harbours, all the ports in Germany. The Germans were actually starving through World War I. They were rationing, and all the rations were given to the soldiers. So there were people dying. I mean, there pictures. They weren't very, let's say, healthy, the population of Germany. And that's what the British did and were brilliant at doing because they had the Navy to do it. And they did one. And the strangest thing is that they did one right in 1913. And the British Navy was enormous. I mean, I can't. It just, as far as the eye could see, were ships. And they had these... Newer, um, they, they invented these new ships in 1903, 1904, that nearly made every other battleship obsolete. And it seemingly cost to build one was about the size of building a city in, or a town in England. But the British built 36 of them before anybody else. The Germans only had, at the very most, 10 or 12. So, you know, the Germans, for some reason, who'll ever know, thought they could take on the British Navy and they hadn't a hope. And every, you know, and I won't, I won't try and explain this, but World War I started, the Germans, I won't go into Sarajevo and all this, but the Germans were surrounded on two sides. They had the French on one side, they had the Russians and the other, And each of them had three and a half million troops. Russians had three and a half million, Germans had three and a half million, who they had virtually all pre-armed, everything was ready for war. And then the French had three and a half million. The British only had 200,000 at the most. And the Germans had it planned that they were gonna hit Paris within 44 days, you know, not 43, not 42, they were gonna go through Belgium, they were gonna come down through France, take Paris, close off the Western Front as far as they were concerned, and concentrate completely on the Russians. But they made that premise, and they made another bad idea, um, another bad decision. They made it on the premise that the Belgians wouldn't show, um, slow them down. And they did it on the premise that the British wouldn't enter the war. Now, why wouldn't the British enter the war? Okay, now the Germans before the war started gave the UVF 30,000 rifles. So they were stirring it up in this island. And they were hoping that we would be a serious problem and we were within inches of it, between the National Volunteers and the UVF. And a civil war in this island, before World War II, World War I started, the British press were more worried about this island than they were about the continent. Because we were on the precipice of a civil war. And if we had started a civil War, the British Expeditionary Force would not have gone to Belgium, Armands, where they made that famous stand against the Germans, they would have gone to Ireland. But John Redmond, magnanimously, uh, he decided that he wasn't going to push home room. He would wait till the war ended. So that took the whole thing out of the Civil War. That was that. on the third or fourth of August the British Expeditionary Force was going to go to Belgium. But they needed the Belgians to slow down the Germans. The Germans sent half a million troops into Belgium, a neutral country, God of us, uh, with a pact with the British. And the Belgians could have laid down, but they didn't. So the Belgians had an army of 120,000 and they fought them tooth and nail. They blew up all their, all their air bridges. They blew up all their rail lines. They did everything possible to slow down the Germans and they, they kept the Germans, I think it took them 21 days to get to Mons and that just gave the British Expeditionary Force, packed with Irishmen I might add, and Claremont, just enough time to reach Mons which is just on the border um, between Belgium and France and they just stopped them there they didn't stop them, but they slowed them down. I mean they were outnumbered four to one. Um, The British and Irish, but they just kept slowing them down as they were trying to get to Paris, trying to get to Paris, trying to get to Paris. So again they're outnumbered five to one but the British and Irish kept slowing them down and slowing them down then they reached the Marne and the Germans then decided to make another crazy decision. They decided to split their army which didn't make sense but they did it. But they left an opening and the French went right through the opening and drove the Germans back, all the way back through the north of France, and they ended back up where the Western Front finished for the f- four years, next to Ypres, right across through the Somme, etc., etc., to the border with Switzerland. And that's invariably where the, the war stayed for four years. And I, I'm sure, I, as I explained to you before, Ypres is a small little town, the most amazing place, most beautiful place, But the Ypres in Flanders, and this was the only part of Belgium the Germans didn't take, was Flanders. And Flanders actually is quite small. And Ypres is famous because Ypres is so, I think it's about maybe 100 miles from the sea. But the Belgians flooded all their dikes, So the Germans couldn't go around the outside of Ypres. What the Germans wanted to do was to get to the ports, the French ports. And they wanted to take the French ports, and then the war was finished. Because if the ports weren't there, there was going to be no munitions, there was going to be no supplies going to the army, and that would have been that. So they had three huge battles at Ypres the first, second, and third, all brutal, and you have to go to Ypres. So they blew the place to shreds. I, don't, I think some, some story is that you could sit in a horse after the end of the war and you could cross Ypres. And Ypres is pretty big. Um, so they kept, uh, um, I won't bore you no more, but World War I was all about hills. If you ever think of any battle in World War I, there's always a ridge or a hill. Because what you did was you took a hill, you put your artillery on top of it, and you pulverised everybody down below. And the amount of shells that were f- fired in World War I is just absolutely mind-boggling. But they kept pulverising Ypres. But the British and Irish kept defending it kept defending it so you have your first battle leap which is brutal and as a matter of fact the Irish featured seriously in that the second one then they caught them on the hop uh, the Germans they introduced gas first time nobody even knew you could do it and the first people were hit were the Royal Dublin fusiliers 400 dubs were wiped out and they had no idea what was happening they saw this thing coming for them they had no gas they <laughs> did nothing and it was just singeing all the trees, singeing everything, and then when it hit them, it would wipe them out. Anyway, that was the second Battle of Ypres, but they still held on to Ypres, just about. So then you come to the third Battle of Ypres, which features, I'm sure everybody's heard of it, Passchendaele. You have to see Ypres because, you know, you could drive from Ypres to the top of the ridge where Passchendaele is in less than five minutes, okay? Half a million people died <laughs> in that five minute journey. And then if you go around Ypres, um, if you go round deep, I, I, I'm not sure how big Ypres is, but I'm, I'm certain it's, it can't be much, it's much, much smaller than this. But if you go around deep, there is a quarter of a million men buried. So there are hundreds of cemeteries around Ypres, every crossroads, every place. And there are all these beautiful Commonwealth Association, you know, meticulously kept. Tragic but meticulously kept and then some are massive and the biggest cemetery, <sighs> the biggest, two biggest cemeteries in the world are around Ypres. One is the Menin Gate. There were two bridges in Ypres but one led to Passchendaele and the Germans kept pulverising it. So hundreds of thousands of soldiers crossed this bridge on their way up to a certain death and they built. The and Gate Bridge, you might have heard of it, it's a beautiful cemetery. I can show it to you if you want. Most beautiful, you should really go there. And every night, except for a COVID, and I believe World War II, but every night since it was built in 1923, it has the names of 60,000 men on it. Uh, How many, maybe 61, 62 clear men. At eight o'clock, the traffic that goes through the bridge stops every night, every night every night since 1923, except for World War Two. And they even continued it during the COVID epidemic. And these three blue come out and they do the last post and the reveille and all the crowds come along every night. And, and then it stops and then they open the bridge and all the traffic flies through. okay? It is absolutely an incredible sight to see. So that's 60 that's whatever. 2,000, I mean, you just can't believe it, the amount of names that are there, because that's how many. These are only the people they couldn't find the bodies for. All the others are buried. So um, then you go up to Passchendaele, and you have this another most majestic cemetery called Tynecott, and then you have, again, how many, I can't remember, forty, fifty thousand. 50,000. I mean, the the battle was so big, Um, As soon as the Battle of Passchendaele started, they had to build a cemetery for all the names and all the people who died there. And they have another majestic cemetery with up to 60,000 alone. Um, So I know I haven't given you, like I did last year, which which was an in-depth, detailed picture of Killaloo Balana, but really, you can go on to the Facebook page. If you want. To. And I, my last lecture, which was all about Kilubalana, is there. And I, I felt I didn't want to be giving you the same lecture again. What I did f- for the lecture last year, uh, this is the Clare War Dead timeline. 700 men and women died from Clare in World War I. And um, this is the timeline. OK? So when I was doing your lecture last year, I said, I'd love to do the timeline to the greenfields of France. So these are all Clare men and and It women. It starts at, actually it starts at the end of 1913. Clare Aviator died. But then it goes through all the different battles from 1st, 2nd, 3rd e the Battle of the Somme, you know the Clement died everywhere in France, In huge amount of them died in Gallipoli, they died in Salonika, they died in Mesopotamia, they died in the air, they died in the sea, they died everywhere. <laughs> do
1: young Willie McBride do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside did they beat the drums slowly did they play the five slowly did they sound did that march as they lowered you down did the band
0: play the last pause in chorus and did the pipes the flowers of the fall Thank you very much
1: I think what we do is we'll share on our Facebook and stuff we're going to share the links to the Clare Library and the links to this video and everything if you want to um, do, it's definitely worth going in there I think and, and
0: researching it, it is a pretty big topic Thank you again Thank you very much. I'm sorry for tiring you out <laughs> <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> <And>
1: <laughs> Thanks a million,
0: thank oh, so for heaven's sake, thank you. you. Thanks Kate. very much, thank you, you're yeah. so kind. Thank you. Thanks a minute.